pull up your trousers, you tarnished Anthony's. You've just sharted on your roller skates. Welcome to the Blind Buy Podcast. Hello. Don't forget to like the podcast, subscribe to the podcast, and maybe write a little review on the Apple Pike Podcast apps, whatever the fuck it's called, and share it with a friend. Alright. How are you getting on? I've been... Do you know what? It's two weeks into the new year. And I've had a surprisingly nice new year so far. And I'll tell you why. I've been doing dry January. Dry January, which I know most of you are also doing, is... Dry January is is when you abstain from... uh, Alcohol, you abstain fr- from drinking for the month of January because December is, is can be quite an excessive month. Christmas parties and family get-togethers, so you drink a bit more in December and you spend a lot of money. Not everybody has a huge amount of money left come January. So I said, fuck it, I'll try dry January for the laugh. I know, I, I kind of... I said I'll try it mainly to see if I could do it. I was just curious to see. Because I was thinking back. Like I, I've been. I'm gigging. Jesus nearly 12 years. And since I've been gigging. I don't think I've gone. A month. Without some little bit of alcohol. Because I, I've definitely done one gig a month. For the past 12 years. Probably. So. Out of curiosity. I said to myself. Do you know what I think it was? I think I needed to see if I could. Because I don't... I don't really drink that much. I drink... Once a week. So that's four times a month. And... I drink between six and eight cans. So that's... You know, drinking until I'm drunk. So it's that's fairly normal. That's what mo- most Irish people would drink around that much. So I was thinking, fuck it. I don't really need, need to do dry January... But I'd like to try it. So I'm 14 days into it. And the results are actually quite surprising. Uh, For the positive. Honest to God. um, I'm definitely getting better sleep. I'm getting like 8 hours of sleep. Like here's the thing. So. Drinking 6 cans once a week is... You know, it's not that much. So you'd think, sure, fuck it, how could that have any influence or impact on your life? And I didn't think it did. But now that I've had no drink in 14 days, I am actually noticing the effect it had. So the first thing I notice is definitely getting better sleep. More regular. So my sleeping routine isn't disturbed i'm i'm waking up now early like i i work from home obviously so i don't have to get up at a certain time every day but now i'm waking up at like half seven in the morning going to the gym early and having this regular routine day and it's because if you get drunk on a saturday you stay up a little bit later and it fucks up your routine what else am i noticing 
as you know, I'm I'm a very active person. I I do a lot of exercise. I exercise maybe between five and six days a week. Three days going to the gym and three days running ten kilometers. So that's that's a lot of exercise. I also eat quite healthily. You know, I prepare all my own food from scratch and I keep an eye on portion sizes. Yet, I'm continually about a half a stone overweight, according to my BMI. So, body fat is flying off me. I I thought it was because I'm in my fucking 30s. I was going, Asher, this is the crack now. It doesn't matter how much exercise I do or how much I watch what I eat. I'm going to have a a bit of dad bod. But, like, 14 days off alcohol and eating properly and, and exercising regularly is now showing... Which I didn't expect at all. Um, what else? I I noticeably have more time. Like when when you drink on a Friday or a Saturday, even if you make all the hangover preparations and drink a lot of water, and you're not suffering an intense hangover the next day, the next day is kind of a write off. You're not fully on form you're not emotionally on form or mentally on form even if you try and maintain your routine so normally for me I'd drink on a Friday or a Saturday the next day I'm kind of my mood is deflated my energy is deflated and when your mood is down you just want instant gratification so the day of a hangover I'm eating a takeaway not even a nice one, just like shit chicken curry. And also fucking up my sleep pattern. So, yeah, fucking hugely positive results of 14 days with no alcohol. And I'm just really surprised that it's like, wow, I, d- I didn't notice the subtle negative effects that even drinking once a week was having on my body. So it's quite enlightening. And... I'm going to get to the end of the month. Now, as you know, in February, I'm going on a tour. I'm gigging in Australia, New Zealand, Thailand. Then I've got a fucking an English tour in March. So I'll probably be having a drink in Thailand or in Australia. Do you know? But this month of no drinking, I'm really, really glad I've done it. And I think going forward... It's it's caused me now to reappraise. I always speak about any substance, right? Any substance, whether it be drink, whether it be fucking hash, whether it be chocolate, whatever the fuck. It, it's not the substance that's important. What's important is our relationship with the substance. So these 14 days of no alcohol have now caused me to reappraise my relationship with it. So I'd say going forward, I'm probably... I, I, I'd like to think, I'd like to hope and try that I might cut down my entire alcohol consumption by about 75%. Do you know? Like, really only have drink as a, as a... I used to have it as a reward. So if I work hard all week, I'm allowed to have a few cans at the weekend because that's a reward. But the thing with that is there was a routine around it. 
So I think I'm going to stop having it as a reward. And now it becomes more of a special occasion or a treat thing. Because I'm really enjoying these 14 days of no alcohol. And I'm not craving it. I don't really think about it. And the only possible negative, the only negative I can think of is... Because I was weighing it up. I was like, where are the negatives here? The only negative is I'm not getting drunk once a week. But who gives a fuck? Also, like, you know, fooling myself into this, this idea that in order to relax and wind down, I must have a few cans. Not at all. I'm now... What did I do on Saturday night? I had a fucking great Saturday night. I sat in. I had... It's it's caused me... Like, I love tea, but it's caused me to really love tea now. So I drank loads of tea, and I went down a beautiful Wikipedia hole reading about the history of grave robbing. You know, and I had a great Saturday night drinking tea, learning loads, reading, chilling out, relaxing, enjoying myself... And then 12 o'clock at night happens and I'm tired and I'm in bed. I'm up on Saturday the next day, bright and early, and I'm in the gym. And then on Sunday I'm running. And yeah, fuck it. It's great. I'm I'm really happy with it. So that that's my update on, on dry January. So this week, it's a very, very long podcast. This is a, it's a two-part podcast. To be honest. The first part is. His history. Uh, I want to give you some history. I want to give you historical context. I want to give you a hot take. To to explain. Where the second part exists as such. So the first part is, is a hot take. For about an hour. And then the second part. Is an interview with a guest. Um. So just to gonna, to let you know that. If you want to either listen to the whole thing or decide I'm going to listen to part one today and part two tomorrow. Some people, Jesus lads, the amount of you that message me and just say, will you make them longer? Will you give us five hour podcasts because I'm in work for five hours? So for those people, you're in luck. It's not going to be five hours, but it's a long podcast in two parts. But it's a podcast. So how much you listen to is entirely up to you. You can listen to this much today this much tomorrow it's entirely up to you alright so this week um, what is this week's podcast going to be about I have an incredibly interesting and important guest who I'm going to be chatting to and that person their name is Brian Warfield and they're the lead singer of a legendary Irish band called the Wolf Tones who are Kind of an Irish Irish traditional music, but who specialise... Their work is rebel songs and ballads. And I'll tell you why I am doing that this week. And why it's, why it's relevant and pertinent. Because this conversation with Brian Warfield, I actually recorded it about three months ago in Vicar Street. It was a great night. But events have happened in the Irish news uh, this week... Which basically means that this is the week to put this interview out, basically. And I'll explain to you what that is. And I'm going to simplify it down as well because I'm conscious that there's a huge amount of listeners for this podcast. I think, look, 60% of the listenership of this podcast isn't in Ireland. So I'm going to simplify it down. 
So, it's 2020 in Ireland. We are coming very close to celebrating the, the 100th anniversary of the independence of the Republic of Ireland from British rule. By which I mean, in on the island of Ireland, we have the 26, 26 counties which are the Republic of Ireland, complete independent freedom from 800 years of Brit- British rule. And then on the north of Ireland, there are six counties that are still under British rule. So, in 1922, Ireland gained its freedom as such through a war with the British. And this war was fought by the IRA against forces of the British Crown. And these forces of the British Crown were known in the the umbrella term of the, the RIC, the Royal Irish Constabulary which constabulary means a police force. So, our government that's in power at the moment, Fine Gael, decided about a week or two ago that they were to commemorate uh, the dead, the IRA dead of the Irish War of Independence in 1922, that they were to commemorate the IRA dead, but that they would also commemorate the dead of the RIC, the Royal Irish Constabulary. And this made people very angry because it's a strange, odd move. It's like Ireland and the IRA fought for independence and freedom from great brutality, uh, physical and systematic oppression, and they fought the RIC. So why would you commemorate the opposition as such why would you commemorate the people that were against the freedom of Ireland so Fine Gael announced they would be commemorating the RIC and a lot of people disagreed with this a lot of people got very very angry because so let's get into the history of I'm, I'm going to try and do this in in the with the nuance the nuance that it deserves because it's complex. So the Royal Irish Constabulary, they were set up around 1836, right? And set up as, according to the Brits, as a police force. They were simply police, a constabulary. They were they were police by name only. They were set up much more uh, closely as a military force. They were organised in barracks. They had rifles, pistols, machine guns. They were a military force, a very militarised force, military paramilitary force, that were called the a constabulary or a police force because if you change the language, it makes them seem a little bit friendly, okay? They would have been... The structure of the RIC would have been at the lower levels... Your average Bobby on the beat, they would have been... There was two, actually. There was the RIC, which would have been rural Ireland, like Limerick, fucking Cork. And then you had the Dublin Metropolitan Police, which were just for Dublin, the Pale, which would have been very British. So, the RIC was composed of kind of regular Irish Catholics 
who would have been an, an oppressed group in 1836, a highly oppressed group. So regular Irish Catholics in the lower levels, but then the higher echelons of the RIC would have been British or Irish Protestant uh, with unionist leanings. So there was, even within the RIC, there was a power structure that was sectarian in nature. The average Irish Catholic wasn't going to climb very high in the RIC. And what's important to remember is that the, the RIC were, they enforced British rule. They enforced... And, and British rule in Ireland in 1836, 1836 is 10 years before the worst of the Irish potato famine, which was a, a genocide on the Irish people, let's be honest. And the RIC, who would have been policing rural communities, heavily armed, they enabled and upheld, often brutally, the force of the British Empire, which was not fair it was a colonial system which was designed to oppress and eradicate the irish people and extract our resources and our land for the benefit only of wealthy people in britain or wealthy colonizers that lived in ireland so the rac they were not they were a police... The only fucking police in the RIC did... It wasn't really for the benefit of the average Irish person. It was much more to protect the interests of who was ruling Ireland at the time. And that was British people and what you'd call wealthy Protestant Anglo-Irish people. In 1836 and onwards, they protected property. They protected landlords... The interest of landlords and the property class. That's who they protected. Okay. You know what, what let's like put it this way. If you're 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 a, a starving Irish Catholic in the famine, right? Which is only a couple of decades after the penal laws. The penal laws were a, a systematic, incredibly racist uh, system of oppression against Irish Catholics that meant an Irish Catholic couldn't own land, couldn't receive an education, all that shit. If you're a starving Irish person and your family is dying all around you because there's a famine and if you steal uh, grain from a landlord who arrests you, the RIC arrested you, what did they do? They shipped you off to Australia. They shipped you off to fucking a penal colony in, in Barbados, whatever the fuck you want, alright? The RIC enabled the the British Empire in Ireland. Now, the nuanced look at it is it was also one of the few outlets for a poor working class Irish person to earn a living. You know, um, there's a famine going on and you want to feed your family so you get a job with the RIC and throughout your job yes you are maintaining a, a force of oppression against your own people but you're living and all of us myself included have relatives with 90, 90% certainty have relatives that were members of the RIC so that's where it, where it becomes tricky 
now you start moving up to the Irish War of Independence, which kicked off in, I believe, around, was it 1919, I think, the first shots of the Irish War of Independence, which were fought by the IRA against the RIC. The RIC, one important thing to know, to, to, to take note of, too, when the Irish War of Independence happened, the IRA sent a very clear signal to all the RIC barracks in the country, clearly stating, you are not safe, there's now a war, if you're a member of the RIC, we don't give a shit if you're an Irish Catholic or not, you are a target. So, by 1919, a lot of native, kind of Catholic, Irish RIC members actually deserted because they didn't feel safe and some of them ideologically did not agree with what was happening. They agreed more with what the IRA were doing. They didn't want to enforce British law in such cruel fashion anymore. So what happened in 1919 onwards is the Brits will say Winston Churchill was one of the brainchilds of it and then the other fellow was called Fuck, what was his name? Viscount Hamar Greenwood, who's actually the actress Cara Delevingne, her great-grandfather, Viscount Hamar Greenwood, they invented uh, a group, two groups known as the Black and Tans and the Auxiliary Forces, right? So this is where it starts to get messy. So the Royal Irish Constabulary, who are, quote-unquote, a police service, they're not doing too well. In the fight against the IRA, who want Irish freedom, circa 1919. So, the Brits, Churchill and Hamar Greenwood, decide, okay, we need to add more forces to this RIC. We need to make them more powerful, more brutal, more vicious. So, two forces were created. The, I don't know the official fucking name, but we call them the Black and Tans. The, uh, no. The RIC Special Reserve, who we refer to as the Black and Tans, because the RIC Special Reserve were ex-British soldiers from World War One, right? They were taken from. They were they were often work working class English, ex-English soldiers who had fought in World War One, who would have suffered shell shock. Some black and tans were actually taken from English prisons. They can be viewed as mercenaries as such. They weren't drafted. The advert was put out that basically the, the, the black and tans were offered very, very good money for the time. It was I think it was like a shilling a day. The closest modern analogue is, is, we'll say, private security forces that operate in, in, in Iraq who receive massive, massive amounts of money to... Uh, do what the Black and Tans are doing, except now in Iraq. But they, they were a mercenary force, so they weren't drafted, we'll say, like they would have been for World War One. It was voluntary, and it's like, here's a load of money. And they were soldiers who had seen the brutality of World War One and survived, and they were given a job in the RIC Special Reserve in Ireland with the express purpose of terrorising the civilian murdering and terrorising the civilian population of Ireland in order to turn regular civilians against the fight for freedom, basically. The Black and Tans were terrorists. British state-funded terrorists. And there's no other word for them, okay? And they were in the RIC. They were the RIC Special Reserve. Why did we call them the Black and Tans? 
because uh, Britain didn't have enough uniforms because World War One, they'd just finished World War One, and they didn't have enough uniforms to give the RIC Special Reserve an actual uniform. So they picked whatever bits they had left from uniforms around the place. So the RIC Special Reserve might have had black pants and maybe a tan jacket or vice versa. So the people of Ireland began to call them the black and tans and they became associated with absolute, horrific, horrible, brutal violence against civilians. They were the Irish equivalent of the SS. Then you had the auxiliaries who were... The Augsies were a little were like posh Brits. They again, some of them were ex World War One, others weren't, but they were of the officer class. So the Augsies, they would have been more upper crust posh Brits, and they would have been kind of telling the black and tans what to do. The Augsies were a shower of cunts as well, but they did it with a posher accent. But we remember the black and tans as being the most brutal, the most violent, the most horrific, and. They existed exclusively for that purpose. The, the Black and Tans, it wasn't like a mistake that Churchill and Hamar Greenwood make, made. They didn't like accidentally go, oh no, we didn't think that they'd be so brutal. It's like, no, they were told to be terrorists and we'll pay you well with British, British tax money to terrorise and kill and murder the Irish people. So that's who the Black and Tans were. But they were all in the RIC. So what happened this week in Ireland is our government, Fine Gael, decided it would be a good idea to commemorate the RIC. Commemorate alongside the the dead who fought for Irish freedom. And it caused a lot of anger and confusion because some people then thought, well, if you're commemorating the RIC, you're also commemorating the Black and Tans because they were in the RIC. Uh, you're also commemorating the auxiliaries. It means that you recognise, and even when they were stepping away from it and going, no, 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 we're not commemorating the Black and Tans, we just want to commemorate the Catholic members of the RIC who were killed in their duty upholding the law. But then you go, what law was that? That was the law of British rule. Then you have the issue of, well, the regular RIC, some of them weren't that nice. They, They... uh, killed strikers during the 1913 lockouts who ordered the killings of these RIC officers well Michael Collins did and isn't he one of the founding members of Fine Gael? so it was a very poorly thought out exercise that the people of Ireland last week absolutely fucking rejected and it made Fine Gael look like fools they used the excuse of, well, it was the Gardaí Síochána, the Irish police force, who requested that the RIC be recognised to commemorate and remember the importance of police duty and policing and upholding the law. But the average Irish person was just like, fuck that. And, you know, where do I stand on it? I'm against it. Uh, I am against it for two reasons. Number one, like I mentioned earlier, because I was against it online and people said to me, you know, my grandfather was in the RIC or my granduncle was in the RIC. Are you saying he did a bad thing? And it's it's a tough one because here's the thing. I guarantee you I have a relative who was in the RIC. I guarantee you, and same with you, if you're an Irish person living in Ireland now, I probably have a relative who 
joined the RIC to feed their family. To just exist, to just live. And in order for them to do that, they had to do unconscionable things. They had to uphold British law against their own people. Okay? And I recognise that. I'm able to look at it in a nuanced fashion and kind of appreciate, okay, they made these choices to eat. That's fine. But I also have relatives who didn't. I have relatives who instead chose poverty and the poverty and the certainty of death by joining the IRA and fighting against the powers of Britain for the freedom that I enjoy today. And when I weigh that up, it's like, okay, I get it. I probably had a fucking an RIC relative who did their thing. But I also had a relative who went to, went against all of that in a principled, principled fashion, put their life on the line, lived in poverty, and won and came out of it as heroes. I remember the RIC relative. I recognise it, but I don't want to fucking commemorate them. I want to commemorate the relative who afforded me the freedom that I have today through their fucking hardship. That's the whole point of commemoration. That's what I want, and it's, I think it's what most other Irish people want as well. Um, so what happened was everyone said, fuck that, and a campaign was started. There's a song called Come Out Ye Black and Tans by a band called The Wolf Tones, and a campaign was started as a protest to get this song to number one in the charts. And it worked. And come out ye black and tans, which is... The lyrics are, come out come out ye black and tans, come out and fight me like a man. It is anti-colonial because it mentions, you know, British oppression in, in Africa, all around the world. It, it, it's, it's a fuck you to the black and tans. So it was a clear message to the Irish government. No, do not commemorate the RIC. And come out ye black and tans was number, is number one right now in the Irish iTunes charts and it's number one in the British iTunes charts this fucking song that contains the lyrics come out your black and tans come out and fight me like a man show your wife how you won won medals down in Flanders tell him how the IRA made you run like hell away this is now number one in the Irish iTunes charts and in the British iTunes charts as a protest and to add insult to injury the Wolf Tones, who recorded the song, uh, announced, yeah, we're very happy with it, and we would like to give all of the proceeds to the Peter McVeary Trust, which is a homelessness charity in Ireland, because our current government, Fina Gale, who wanted to commemorate the RIC, are at the forefront of one of the worst housing crises and homeless crises that we've ever seen in Ireland. So here's here's my hot take on the issue. So firstly, this is why I'm going to have Brian Warfield speaking, even though he doesn't speak about this because it was recorded two months ago. Here's my hot take on the whole issue. Honestly, do I give a, do I really give a fuck about a monument commemorating someone? N- not really. You know, it's 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 a monument. It's a piece of stone with names on it. I think it's wrong. To commemorate the RIC, it irritates me. But 
ultimately what effect on my life does it have if there's a fucking a slab of marble that has the names of dead men that died a hundred years ago you know I'm I'm not going to get that bothered about it it's not hugely important there's there's much greater things happening in our greater injustices in Ireland right now for all of us to be passionately angry about that if we change those things it will affect our lives but some names on a slab not that important however and here's my fucking hot take and this is why I do care about it so what I'm interested in is the bigger picture okay the bigger picture of of not what is happening not 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 like you know there's a commemoration of the RAC what I want to look at is, is why. There's a theory of the a theory of understanding how power works in society by a, a French philosopher called Althusser. Um and the theory is it's it's repressive state apparatuses and ideological state apparatuses, okay? So the repressive so how power is enforced within a state, right? Let's just take the RIC. The RIC, when Britain ruled Ireland, would have been part of the the repressive state apparatus. So the repressive state apparatus is police, the army, the court system, jails, kind of the physical, how power is enshrined. And there's, you know, there's good and bad things. If your car is getting robbed, you're going to call the police. But, like, the thing is, is that repressive state apparatuses, they tend to follow clear structures of power, okay? So, we'll say the RIC during the Irish famine, acting as the repressive state apparatus, when someone was starving and dirt poor their landlords were, were kicking them out of their homes and putting them out onto the into the fields with nowhere to live to die. The landlord wasn't calling down to that person's house and kicking them out. It was the RIC, the Royal Irish Constabulary, who were a military force, evicted the starving during the Irish famine. They acted as the repressive state apparatus. The ideological state apparatus is the... So if, if the repressive state apparatus acts visibly, the police are visible, the army are visible, the courts are visible, jails are visible, we can see these things, you can see them happening. The other side of things is what's known as the ideological state apparatus, which is a narrative or ideology, you know, a, a, a system of beliefs about society and about class and about power that... Also, that that enforced through thought, through how we think about ourselves, how we think about our neighbours, how we think about our politics. The ideological state apparatus does the same thing as the repressive state apparatus, except with ideas and words and rituals, okay? So, in the time of the famine... You know, what was the fucking... What was the ideological state apparatus? It was whatever Britain was saying... You know, it's fucking royalty. It was Britain at the time had a, had a a huge horn for 
liberal economic policies. They believed fully in non-intervention. So the British believed that, okay, there's hundreds of thousands of people starving to death in Ireland. Because we believe in the free market, we must not intervene. We must not uh, offer them food. We must place all our belief in the economic system to work itself out. Therefore, we must not intervene. That's an ideological state apparatus. If you want to see it in action right now, you know, fucking, if, if you're looking at the British news and you're wondering, you know, Meghan Markle and, and Harry are about to leave the royal family and it's the most important headline in British news and you're on the outside looking in going, why the fuck is this important? Harry and Meghan just want to fuck off to Canada. Who cares? Why is this the biggest thing in British news? Even more so than, we say, the protests in Iran or the fact that the... Iran uh, was like almost attacking the British embassy in Iran last week. Yet, Harry and Meghan leaving the royal family is the most important thing in the British news. Because that's the ideological state apparatus. In order for British class structure and power to remain how it is, in order to justify what Britain is, they need the fucking royal family. Now, if you're listening and you're thinking, Jesus blind by this sounds like conspiracy theory. I need to make it clear, like, a bunch of people don't sit around and rub their hands together, a people in power, and say, all right, lads, what's today's ideological state apparatus? No, that that's conspiracy theory. What this is instead, it's, it's a way of analysing the outcomes of what happens under capitalism. It's as simple as that. Capitalism is a structure and a system and it has outcomes and something, you know, phrases like ideological state apparatus, it's merely a way of analysing how that complex system works and what the outcomes are. That's all it is. It's like fucking... When I talk about psychology, you know, when I speak about something like transactional analysis or CBT, you know... It's, you're measuring kind of the outcomes of human behaviour. You know, the many complex forces at work and just simply offering language to understand something that you feel and know, but now you have words for it. And that's all this is. So, who enforces the ideological state apparatus? The government, the religious institutions. In the case of Britain, it's the monarchy. And then the media. The media communicate ideological state apparatus to you and me. So that's what's happening with the Brits right now. So here's the thing with the commemorations of the RIC and why I'm cautious of it. I believe, right, who called for the RIC to be commemorated? The Irish police, the guards and Fianna Gael. It doesn't make sense. Everyone's going, why would you do this? This is ridiculous. Why would, you, why would you even introduce to the conversation that you might commemorate someone as brutal as the RIC? Why would you even bother? It makes no sense. Here's the thing. I believe that it's part of an ideological state apparatus to normalise increasingly increased militarisation in the Irish police and to normalise things like evictions and heavy-handedness to benefit the power structure of landlordism that we're currently seeing in Ireland. 
we have a huge housing crisis. People in Dublin can't barely afford their fucking rent. No one's buying a house. Dublin is... All of Ireland is being made unlivable because of incredibly high rents. And what's happening is that the structure, the system of property in Ireland is no longer... It does not benefit the people. It benefits the owners of property. It benefits landlords, vulture funds. If you look at current uh, solutions that Fine Gael, that the government have, and not just Fine Gael because this was happening before them, will say solutions to homeless, quote-unquote solutions to homelessness in Ireland. They're not building council houses. They're not housing anyone. What they're doing is emergency accommodation. They are putting faith in the private market. No, I won't even call it putting faith. What they're doing is, if you are a homeless family in Ireland right now, and you're lucky enough to get any assistance beyond living in a tent on the street, what happens is you go into a thing called emergency accommodation. What is this? It means that you live temporarily in a hotel room. You could have a family of five people, you live in a hotel room. No cooking facilities, no nothing. Same with fucking asylum seekers and refugees. They live in direct provision centres, often in hotels. What's happening is, it's a for-profit system. People, organisations and people who own hotels in Ireland, they have full occupation every night of the week. Our tax money is paying these people to, to fill up their hotels with homeless people who are trapped in this inhumane system where they will never they'll never be given a council house because they don't exist or are given access to affordable housing instead they're in a continual system of living in hotel rooms and people are making money off this so the people who are making money are the people with power the landlords are making a huge amount of money from the rent crisis Okay, rents are going up and up and up. People are being left with no choice. So what you have is a power structure in Ireland right now that benefits hotel owners, people who own second properties, vulture funds, large corporations. Okay, so this kind of defines the ideological state apparatus. Last year, the housing crisis got so bad that activists tried to take over uh, a derelict building in Dublin in Frederick Street. They peacefully took over this building as a protest for about three weeks. The owner of the building was being accused of being a slumlord. All right. Also, the like laws exist in Ireland against things like dereliction, against things like you know tenants' rights exist in Ireland, but they're not being enforced. That's an important thing too about both the rep- repressive state apparatus and the ideological state apparatus. Laws exist, but they're not being enforced. Like last year, a law was brought in to cut down on... like one. Another thing is Airbnb. Very powerful pop, uh, corporation. Their headquarters are in Dublin. Airbnb is contributing to the rent crisis because people, instead of renting their properties out, are putting them out as short-term lettings, which means you're not offering people homes, you're offering temporary accommodation for tourism. And But basically last year, our Minister for Housing said that he'd brought in a law that de-incentivizes people to 
do short term lettings, right? That stops people abusing the system. And we all went, brilliant, they've brought a law in. But it's not being enforced. It's not being enforced. Tenants' rights are not being enforced. Slumlords are not being punished. Buildings that are going derelict are not being punished for dereliction. So the laws exist, but they're not being enforced. So that right there, it's the repressive state apparatus and the ideological state apparatus working only in favour of the property owners. The people who have property have got power right now in Ireland. So as I mentioned last year, there was a protest at Frederick Street with peaceful protesters who'd stayed in a building for a week. It was an unoccupied building. No one was living there. They did it as a protest. What happened? The Gardaí, the Irish police, who were the ones who called for the RIC to be commemorated, the Gardaí arrived. The Gardaí uh, arrived to stop the protesters. They stepped back while masked men men in balaclavas who were not Gardaí, they were private security, violently manhandled the protesters while the Gardaí stood back. And it was fucking shocking. Because what you have there is... It's, it's, it's like... It's, it's sneaky shit. It's like the guards wouldn't put their hands on the protesters, but they'll step back while these masked... masked men, who I believe were from the north of Ireland, manhandled people in front of them with a van that didn't have a license plate and they did it in clear view and that right there is a violent aggressive eviction which most Irish people saw it and said what the fuck do we do now this is no longer policing within what we understand to be the rule of law they've done something different now they've bent it they're operating on the sidelines the situation in Ireland isn't getting any better we have the rents are getting higher homelessness is increasing it's not improving we don't know when there's going to be a next the next uh, fucking recession another thing that's driving the issue in dublin is instead of homes being built instead of apartments being built hotels are being built and everyone's left scratching their head going but we these hotels aren't even sustainable there's not even enough tourists for all these hotels. Why would they do this? I'll tell you why they'll fucking do it. Because come next recession, when there's more homeless people, these hotels don't have to worry. These hotels are recession proof because the government will use our tax money to fill up every single room with full occupation of homeless people instead of offering solutions. I believe that the commemoration of the RIC it's a deliberate, thought-out, think-tank kind of move to enforce the ideological state apparatus that normalises evictions and violence. If you look at the history of the RIC and what they did, they have a history of brutality, evictions and militarisation. If you're the, the government or the Irish police at the moment and you condone, or not condone, if, if you condemn the RIC if you take a stand and say we will not commemorate the RIC why not because the RIC represent oppression violence evictions if you condemn that then you have to look at your own behavior and now you have to moderate how you behave going forward but if you turn around instead 
and you start calling the RAC a police force, you start rehashing the ideological state apparatus that the Brits were using 100 years ago or before, and you start saying, the RAC were just police. The RAC were just doing their job. The RAC were murdered in the streets while just doing their job. And you commemorate them. It reinforces an ideological state apparatus that normalises violence, police brutality and evictions and militarisation. And the Gardaí have a magazine called Garda Review and like this month the January cover of Garda Review is because we don't have armed police in Ireland. It's, we, we do have armed police but they're like a special branch of, of armed police but the average Irish Gardaí is not armed. The, the front cover of, of the Garda Review this month of January 2020 is guards with machine guns and bulletproof vests with balaclavas on looking like the SAS. So that that's why I'm concerned about the commemoration of the RIC. It's not about names on a fucking slab of men who died a hundred years ago. Don't mind that. If you're going to get pissed off about that, if you want to get pissed off about Jim Larkin's statue outside Burger King, you know, a great socialist outside fucking Burger King in O'Connell Street. No, what concerns me is it's evidence of the ideological state apparatus. It is normalising uh, evictions, brutality and the enforcement of law to benefit exclusively the propertied class at the expense of everyone else. And that's my hot take around it. And you can roll your eyes at that if you want. It's a hot take, it's an opinion. It's how I see what's happening right now. It's me voicing my concerns on a fucking podcast. If you disagree with that, that's fine. Alright? So, with that in mind, all that shit led to the Wolf Tones getting to number one. iTunes charts with Kamauchi Black and Tans and them giving the money to Peter McVerry Trust. So I will be after the Ocarina pause, I will be playing my interview that I did in Vicker Street with Brian Warfield from the Wolf Tones. And why am I doing this? I'll tell you why, because the Wolf Tones they're an Irish rebel band. They've been around for 55 years. They've had uh, several number one singles. They've had number one singles and they weren't being played on the radio when they were number one because of a sense of shame and fear around rebel songs and what it represents. You know, this was happening as well around the time of the 60s and the 70s in Ireland when you had what was called the Troubles up north. So... We'll say uh, uh, there's no real decent documentary about the Wolf Tones for a band that have existed for 55 years. I grew up with the Wolf Tones music in my house. A lot of fucking people listening to this podcast know the Wolf Tones music from growing up. If you're at a sesh, the Wolf Tones is played. It's important music to Irish culture. It's ubiquitous music. Um. They deserve to be to be recorded and remembered. That absolutely because RTE aren't doing it, TV Three aren't doing it. There's been no decent Wolf Tones documentary, so that's why I, re- I brought uh, Brian Warfield on to talk as a kind of a, I suppose the Alan Lomax in me 
who wants to make sure that I'm recording and preserving someone who, whether you like them or don't like them, are of cultural importance to Irish music and Irish culture. And there's no denying that. There's no denying it. Okay, time now for the ocarina pause. You may or may not hear an advert. This is this is where an advert gets inserted digitally. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Okay. Um, just a quick announcement of some gigs, all right? Blind by a, a live podcast Australia and New Zealand tour. I believe there are tickets left for this is happening in February 2020, so that's next month. Tickets left for Auckland and New Zealand, uh, Sydney and Melbourne, I believe. My tour of up and down England and Scotland, there are tickets left for is it Birmingham and Birmingham and Liverpool. There are there are tickets left. Again, just type in Google Blind Boy Live Podcast Tour Britain 2020. What else am I doing? March, I'm in Drogheda in the TLT Concert Hall. Fucking I'm in Monaghan. <coughs> Sorry, Monaghan made me cough just mentioning it. I'm in Monaghan. I'm in the Cork Opera House in fucking what is that, March? I'm in Vicar Street in Dublin. I'm in Ulster Hall. I'm in the Glore Theatre in Ennis. It'd be great if I had a fucking website with all my... There is a website, but I don't run it. I don't know who runs it. Some A fan of mine is operating a blind by website. I don't know what the fuck... If you're listening to this, will you update my gigs, will you? And give me a shout. So look, I've got live gigs coming up. You know the crack. I'm shit at promoting them. Shit at promoting them. Um, this podcast is supported by you, the listener. All right, it's a free podcast. You listen to it for free. I make it for free, but some people are patrons of this podcast. So if you like what I'm doing, if you're listening and you want to support me financially, um, Patreon.com forward slash the Blind Boy Podcast. Give me the price of a pint. Or a cup of coffee. Now that I'm doing dry January. I'm going to be drinking a lot more coffee and tea. So. Look. Suggest a donation. 
every fucking month. Coffee or a pint, whatever you want. Patreon.com forward slash the blind boy podcast. Alright. Let us now go into my interview with Brian Warfield from the Wolf Tones. This is a long podcast. I've spoken for a fucking hour. And you're about to now get an interview. But a lot of you mail me and say you love the really long podcast, especially those of you who have boring jobs or long commutes. So here you go. God bless. And and all I can say about this is Brian has got an interesting history and he's a very eccentric character. So I'm going to bring out my guest now in a minute. And kind of what I want to... This last night's gig and this night's gig, they're part of a festival called Music Town, which is it's about music, which means that the guests that I have on are musical guests. And my guest tonight is... They're kind of, they're legendary in the field of, of rebel music and Irish ballads, right? But it's a genre, like, the reason I'm doing it, it's my curiosity as someone who adores music and someone who adores culture. The band, the Wolf Tones, everyone knows about them, but they've never been played on the radio, they're never on television, but still, you just know about them. Do you know what I mean? So my guest is Brian Warfield, who is the lead singer of the Wolf Tones and the songwriter. Come on out, Brian. Great to be here with Brian Boy. <laughs> What's the crack? And uh, I'd like to... Uh, tell him about my book. Uh, Straight out with the fucking plug. <laughs> It's yeah, not the it's late, late show, man. <laughs> Go on, you have a book yeah, out. Yeah, I have a book out, and uh, yeah, it's 55 years of the Wolf Tones. Uh, it took me two years to write it, so it'll only take you five minutes to buy it. <laughs> and th- that is, uh, that's essentially your biography, because you've had a musical career. I mean, your, the Wolf Tones' first album was 1964. Yeah, our first album, we, we started a group way back in 1963. And uh, in 1964, we were probably one of the first Irish bands to get a record con- contract. And it was with uh, Fontana Records, and uh, they were a very big label at the time. And, um, were they British or American now, Fontana? They, they were British, yeah, and they were headquarters. <laughs> they were British. And, <laughs> and, and by the way, they loved the Wolf Tones. <laughs> More than I can say about some Irish people. <laughs> But uh, we got our first contract, and uh, it was for five years, for five records. We completed that contract, and since then, after all those years, we've gone through 50 records. <laughs> wow. Wow. Um, so, like, this is to a, a mostly Irish audience here, but when the podcast goes out, it's, it's to a global audience. So, like, there's there's going to be Greeks listening. And people from Argentina. Um, so what I want to start with is some, just some really, really simple questions, such as what is ballad music, what is rebel music? It's all the one, and it's all telling the story of Ireland. And, uh, you know, the Irish people are very noble and great, uh, wonderful, resilient people. And, you know, when they were downtrodden and left... Uh, 
left to, to starve during famines and all, everything else. They rose up, and we had great people who gave everything they had. They gave their reputation, their money, everything they had for the people they loved. There's very few examples of that across the world. And I'm very proud to tell the story of those. We never, ever portray the junk, drunken Irish uh, image across the world because I felt that was downgrading the Irish people. They wanted to see that, the English people wanted to see that drunken paddy image, and we never portrayed that. We told the story of a noble people fighting for their rights, fighting for their rights across many, many centuries. And eventually, hopefully, within my lifetime, we will see that completed. Um. One thing there, actually, Brian, that's quite interesting is so a, a lot of people today will come across the music of the Wolf Tones, usually via YouTube, okay, listening to it on YouTube. And often what I see is Wolf Tones music will get suggested to someone under the title of Irish drinking songs. Mainly Americans will, uh, th this genre of Irish drinking songs, they're songs that you don't engage with the lyrics, you don't, they're just background music for playing up to that stereotypical Irish drunk paddy thing. Like, how do you feel about that? How do you see the, the Irish drinking song versus the rebel song or versus the ballad? And do you, do you dislike Irish drinking songs? No, I, I, I like a drink myself and I like drinking songs. <laughs> and uh, there's nothing wrong with them. And uh, they're great songs and great stories about Irish uh, way of life. Uh, also, it's very important when you, you look at the whole global feel of Ireland and the, that Irish identity, that you don't leave out the rebel song. Yeah. And the, the unfortunate thing is about a lot of people in Ireland, they feel that, you know, you can, you can tell the love ballad, you can tell the story about drinking and getting uh, drunk, but you cannot tell the story about an Irish hero. Now, just for instance, over the years, the Wolf Tones, uh, we're here for 55 years, we've told the story of great people like Wolf Tone, Bowdenstown Churchyard, great and wonderful songs. And we've told that story and song and spread around the world about these great and noble people. Despite that, here in Ireland, in our national radio and television station, they have ignored the fact that we contributed so much to the memory of these great men. I heard on the Late Late Show when Rod Stewart uh, did uh, Grace uh, there quite recently, we'd been doing it for years, but uh, yeah, uh, and the, the host of the show, what's his name? Pat Kenny. Uh, 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 Ryan, <laughs> yeah. Ryan Tuberty. Ryan Tuberty, yeah, Ryan Tuberty. Yeah, he was going on and on and about this. Oh, thank you very much. Thank you. Great. Oh, yeah, you're wonderful. Oh, yeah, Rod, you're a great guy. That's oh, a very thank good... you very much for telling the story of That's Ireland. We've been telling Tuberty it for impression. bloody years. He never said that. What an asshole he is. <laughs> I can't believe... You know, the honesty of Irish people. <laughs> I don't mean Irish people, I mean him. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, what I'd like to know is, like, 
like obviously what, what, what you're doing, you're carrying on a tradition. Like it's, it's within the canon of Irish traditional music, but it's the specific genre of the rebel song. Um, singing about people who, like, a lot of it is singing about people who have died. It's like, it's, they're almost like uh, remembering someone's death, almost like a, 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 an oration at their grave. And it's like their life carries on through these songs. W- would that be correct? Well, I think, you know, when you, when you look at people like James Connolly, yeah. when you look at people like Padraig Pierce, you look at people like Joe Plunkett, mm-hmm. and you, you look at these wonderful people who are all very, very well-educated people, and uh, they, they, had, they had a love for Ireland that we could never understand. Mm-hmm. There was no greed for money like there is today. These people gave their money. They gave their money and spent their money away for the people they loved. So I feel that they should be remembered. Mm-hmm. That they should be remembered with pride and the dignity that they deserve. And the Wolf Tones go out and do that every single night of the week. We don't forget, we don't forget the wonderful people that gave their lives and gave everything they had. And it is important that even today, when we look at people today and the greed that is around Ireland and the drug culture that we have, where Irish people are killing Irish people for, for greed and for wealth and for a, a little bit of power in, in a struggle for selling drugs to other Irish people who are killing those young people day by day, I think it's horrific. And I think, and I think if these people understood their history, if they understood what Ireland is, really is, and with noble people as examples and not the drug culture that we have today. I couldn't believe it. I knew the man who blew up uh, Nelson's pillar, uh, Liam Sutliff. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, Liam Sutliff said to me there before he died, he blew uh, up the pillar and I hated him for it, by the way. I, just for someone who doesn't know what that is, because that sounds overtly sexual. <laughs> if you don't know the context, where the, where the Dublin Spire is now used to be Nelson's Pillar. It, it, uh, Admiral Nelson and the official IRA, I believe it was, blew it up for the no, crack. No, it, it was a group. It was a group from Drimna in Dublin called Sair Erna. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah is yeah. anybody here from Drimna? <laughs> Sair Erna from Drimna and uh, Liam Sutliff was one of that uh, uh, faction, you might say. But they, they felt for 1966, they would blow up the pillar. But they did, and they made a good job of it, you might say. But, <laughs> but I was very angry with them because one of the treats we had when we made our communion was to go up the pillar and take a task and go up there to the very top. It took us ages and ages. Oh, not another step. We count them as going up and everything else. And we had a great time. We looked down all over the city of Dublin. And it was a wonderful thing. And, you know, I didn't care who was up there. They could have blew off the statue. And I said that to Liam, blow the bloody statue off and put up, uh, put up uh, Padraig Pierce. You know, outside the GPO, where it would be a wonderful, wonderful um, yeah, thing to do. Yeah, but what? instead of that, he blew the whole bloody thing apart. <laughs> and he said when they put up the spiral in Dublin, he was raging that he blew up uh, the pillar. <laughs> That's he a good said, point, cause <laughs> because he said, this bloody thing, this bloody thing looks like a, 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 it's a needle. It's like a, a monument to drug addicts. 
What kind of stuff is this? Yeah, that's I, a good point. I can understand his gripe with Nelson, but I can't understand his gripe with columns. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? It's just a pillar. Pillars are great. They hold up buildings, you know? Um, let's take it back to, like, to you being a kid, right? So you would have been like a, a child in the 50s. So you would have been hearing on the radio like Elvis, Buddy Holly, things like that. So you, you, pop music was there for you. Where were you first hearing rebel songs, like in Dublin, or just Irish trad or Irish music? How did you end up picking up an instrument and deciding this is what I want to do, like your earliest experience of it? Well, it was always in my family, and uh, we grew up at the time of only radio. We didn't have television until I was about 15 or 16. So we grew up with the radio, and that's all we heard. And, and that and was in Core. In Inchicore in Dublin, yeah. yeah. And... Um, yeah, yeah, and a great place, a wonderful place. And all my family, going back generations, were from Inchicore. But uh, we grew up listening to the music and having our parties at night. Uh, every Friday night, we went down to our grandmother's, where a big sing song would ensue. And uh, all the uncles, aunts, and everybody, we'd all gather there, and everyone would sing a song. My grandfather, God bless him, Paddy Cunningham. And Paddy was a great entertainer, and he was in demand all over in Chicago, come to the parties, in the pubs, singing along. He was great. But um, when we were singing, he'd get us up and sing, uh, to sing songs. At, at, we'd go up to the door, whatever it is, uh, the hallway door, coming in. That was the stage. And he'd ask you to sing a song. We'd, we'd sing a song. But if you sang an Irish song, you got sixpence. If you sang a rock and roll song, you only got a penny. <laughs> <laughs> and, like, when did you pick up an instrument? Well, I started to play an instrument. I bought my first uh, guitar in Walton's in Dublin. I, I, I was about 14 years of age, and it was a guitar made... Uh, it was made in Germany, a Kessel guitar. It was a classical guitar. I loved it. I had it for many years, and I, then I passed it on to my brother, who took it over, my brother Bernard. And did you have any relationship at the time with, like, the Behans? With the Behans? Like, the Behans, like, isn't, uh, no, I might, is Kamauchi Black and Tans, was that written by Dominic Behan? Well, by, by it's, it's in his book, uh, which I have at home, but I, whether he wrote it or not, I don't know. But Kamauchi Black and Tans, you know, my mother was born in 1916. And uh, she, was, uh, she was probably just a young girl when the Black and Tans were around in Chicor. And she remembers them very well, and uh, she remembers uh, taunting them with songs. And uh, one of the songs uh, she used to sing to them was the Boers. They were fighting, and the British couldn't fight. Boers took out their rifle, and they'd sing these songs to the Black and Tans as they came around to taunt them. The children, the children were intimidating the Black and Tans. <laughs> so, uh, you know, it made, them, it made the fact that they weren't very welcome. But they were notorious because they burned the city of Cork. They burned Balbricken and many, many other towns. They raped and plundered their way around Ireland. So they weren't liked by the Irish people. Get out, you black and dance! <laughs> <laughs> it's true. They were not welcome. It's, it's one thing that I do... Like, some people would be... If I share that song online, British people in particular would get angry. And I'd say to them, no, you need to understand... The, like, the Black and Tans were specifically created by Winston Churchill, right? Their only job was to intimidate civilians. That was their only job. They were effectively the SS. 
you know, and in West Cork, uh, my granddad was in Tambury's Fine Column, and in, in West Cork, the, the head of the RIC at the time, he brought in a rule that said that any man in West Cork who has his hands in his pockets is to be shot dead. That's an actual, that was a, a rule that was brought in, and the Black and Tans were the ones who were, they were the ones doing that, you know, so for a song like that, it's like they, they were the SS, you know, so I, I don't have an issue with, uh, with something like that with saying, of course, fuck off. You can't cook. No, thanks. Can you leave, please? Um, <clears throat> when did you start, like, when did you become the Wolf Tones? And when that happened, what, what, like, what were your first gigs? Well, it, it goes back a long time. I, I, in 64, we were picked up by a, a, a Canadian television company. How did that happen? Uh, yeah, we were... We were busking down at Killarney and um, we were outside the pub and after the pub's closed and a big crowd of people around us and this guy came up, he's a producer from uh, a Canadian company, he said, will you come on and do a couple of songs for us, we're doing a, a, a documentary in Ireland. I said, oh, that was fine, but, uh, yeah, why not? And uh, we were only kids at the time, but uh, we went on and we did those shows we were busking around Ireland for about two weeks, and I came back with about five times more money than I left with. I don't know how that happened, but the busking must have went well. But um, we uh, got that television show, and it, was, it, it made us feel like, you know, we were worthwhile, and we, were, we must be good, and we must, yeah, we have something that people liked. And so after that, you, you know, I emigrated to England, and uh, I lived over there in England for a year. And over there, I uh, went to the folk clubs around, uh, around Essex, around... And did Romford. you go there as a musician? You went to England to... Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Well, I had to work. Mm -hmm. <laughs> now, I went down and I had all kinds of jobs, making chewing gum. I, <laughs> I, I was it. expecting Brick Lane or something <laughs> like that. <laughs> well, I tried that once. I, I tried went it. over to England to make chewing gum. Fuck off. <laughs> I tried that once, and I went out, I went out to, to one of the... We, I, I don't, were the you working in a chewing gum factory, or was it just... <laughs> no, me, Brian Warfield, I'm <laughs> making my own chewing gum in my flat. Do you want some of this? It's in my pocket. <laughs> this is the, before the chewing gum factory. I went out to one of... You know, I, got a, I got a job picked up by the, a gang and brought out to a work site. And when I was out there, there was all these burly, uh, you know, guys from uh, Kerry and Cork and all the rest. And here was I, a little timid fellow from Dublin. Hey, Dublin, you're not suitable for this. Get out of here. If I was you, go back there and get a job in an office. <laughs> <laughs> they, they were used to the shovel and everything else. It wasn't easy, believe me. I tried it. Uh, they sent us out to get, break down a bit of hardcore. Do you ever hear a hardcore? Not in, the, not in the context of it. Well, I can tell you. <laughs> it's not that kind of hardcore. Yeah. It's, all kind of, it's all kind of shit there in the ground that's left there, rubble all mixed up and okay, concrete yeah. and everything. So, um, one thing I'd like to know is, like, even in, in my own career with Rubber Bandits, like, we started to get kind of popular around the last recession. So what was quite important to us as gigging musicians was the Irish diaspora. Like, half my friends left for Australia, so we had to do a lot of gigs in Australia, we had to do gigs in England, we had to do gigs in Canada to follow where the Irish were going. 
because it's just simply, we, around 2011, 2012, we couldn't do gigs in a lot of smaller towns in Ireland because th there was no fucking young people there. And if they were, they certainly didn't have money in their pocket to go to a gig. Did you find that the heavy amounts of emigration that would have been happening in the, in the 60s was beneficial to the start of the Wolf Tones career? Well, you know, if you, if you were to depend on Ireland, you'd never make a living. Yeah. Because Ireland is too small mm -hmm. and, and its population are too small. To, for you to go out there every single week and, you know, sing your songs, the people get fed up with you. Yeah. But, um, you know, what we did uh, from the early stages, we played England and we played uh, America, we played Australia, we played across the world. We are very popular across Europe, in Germany, in France, in Holland. And, uh, you know, that's uh, In split those up countries the there, I'm guessing in Germany and France, you're not necessarily playing to Irish people, you're playing to French and German people who like Irish traditional music. Yes, and, uh, you know, I don't think people understand how popular the, the Irish song and story was across Europe. And we played there, you know, at the biggest festivals in Europe. We played there at a great festival recently in Skagen in Denmark. It's one of the great uh, festivals of Europe. And, uh, you know, we sang the song Joe MacDonald. And that song got a 10-minute standing ovation wow. by the people of, uh, of, uh, of Denmark. And they understand the story of Ireland. You see, the story of Ireland is not the story that comes out of England mm -hmm. and the propaganda that goes across the world. And they have the ear of the world. Remember that they do have the ear of the world. We don't. We're smaller. But the Irish ballad and the Irish story and the ballad singers going across the world have told a story from a dis different perspective. And they have just told a story where uh, the, the people of these worlds hear it for the first time and maybe for the second time and they begin to understand that there are two sides to every story. And that's how the, the wolf tone spread across the world, the real story of what was happening in Ireland. You know, we supported the people of Belfast and of Derry from the early days of the civil rights movement. And we felt it was important that we did because nobody else was. They were being run down, not alone in England, they were being called terrorists and everything else. But in Ireland, they were afraid to support the people of the six counties. But the Wolf Tones were never afraid, and if I had it all over again, I'd do it again. Because, yeah, that's thing, something that I find interesting is, so ye, like you would have started in the early 60s, so in the early 60s, it, it, before the period that we'd call the Troubles, the IRA were just blowing up pillars. <laughs> you know, they weren't really... It, it, it's, it's nearly fair to say that in the 60s, the IRA were almost a nostalgic thing. They didn't exist. Yeah. But then, so you start off in the early 60s, essentially in a kind of safe enough climate. But then what happens when the troubles kick off? Because all of a sudden then, as, as a musical act now, you become dangerous, you become controversial. Um, you know, RTE are going, we, we have to distance ourselves from this type of thing. How was that for E as an act? And, and I, I, like, I, can, I, I imagine your life was in danger a lot. Well, it was. And, um, you know, when we started off, uh, when the troubles came around and we were still playing uh, as we did, we played the Ulster Hall, 
uh, I played the Ulster Hall in Belfast just after uh, Ian Paisley had had his church meeting. Yeah. Um, I played uh, all the places around uh, the six counties, as we call it. And, you know, the troubles came along. That was okay until the troubles came along. And then it got more dangerous. Yeah. We played in Kilkeel at one stage, and um, we were playing at a GA club just outside Kilkeel. And we what, went, year, what year would this be? The, this would be um, in the 70s. Yeah. Yeah. And it was just before the Miami killing. Yeah. And uh, we, were, we were playing in a, a big marquee, which was part of the GAA field. And the, the, the committee were bringing us down to a pub to have a, a pint before the gig or a sandwich. And on our way down, they said, no, you can't, you can't go into this uh, pub. We, we, the RIC or the RUC and uh, the, the UDR and all were drinking in the front bar. So they were drinking in the front bar, so we had to go into the kitchen and have a pint. So we went into the kitchen and had a, had a pint uh, and a sandwich, then went back to, and done the gig. There was a lot of to and fro, I heard screeching of brakes and everything else through the night, and I was wondering, what the hell is going on here? But after the gig, um, I came out, and uh, the, the organizers said to me, you can't go home the main road. And I said, why is that? He said, because you, there's a, a blockade waiting for you down there. Wow. So um, they said, we're going to take you over the mountains of Morn, which they did. We went up the mountains of Morn. We had a, an old Comer truck, old Comer van at the time. And we went up the mountains of Morn, up the hill, and we reached the very top. When we reached the top, they said, now, that's the way down, straight into Warren Pint, and you should be okay. So we followed instructions, and on our way down, the car exploded with steam coming out of the engine because it overheated with going up the hill. But anyhow, we had to get bog water and pee into the thing and everything else to get, <laughs> to get us down into, the, well, in, in, into Warren Pint. Pissing into a van to get away from the UBF. <laughs> <laughs> we got down. We got down anyhow to Warren Point and then back to Dublin. On the, on the day we got back to Dublin, the uh, special branch said uh, that the Wolf Tones were not to go north again, that our lives were in danger. On the following Wednesday, the Miami was shot. I believe, I believe the massacre of the, uh, Miami was set up for the Wolf Tones on that night. I believe that the Glen Ann gang were drinking in that front bar. UDR, the RIC, and all those RUC, and all those people were in that front bar, getting locked out of their mind, ready to pick up the Wolf Tones on the way home. And that would have been our fate, had it not been for the information we got that night, and up the mountains we went to safety. So I believe that's true. But ever since then, we never ever drove our own cars up through... Um, the, the north of Ireland, because we always felt in danger, we were told we were in danger. But it brought us in to concerts in hay trucks, in uh, armoured cars, we travelled in Jerry Adams' armoured car, we, tra <laughs> we travelled in loads and loads of different ways, and we never all travelled together, it was two and two. But anyhow, that's the danger where you were in, it was not easy. But, and people have accused the Wolf Towns of not playing 
in the north of Ireland during the Troubles. We never ever stopped playing during the Troubles. We walked into horrible situations and we survived them, thank God. <clears throat> um, I've got two... I've got one question that was asked by a British person, right? online and it's it's deliberately it's 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 deliberately antagonistic you know what i mean it was a deliberately antagonistic question but i decided it would be a good question to ask so first off someone said how do you feel about being called the musical wing of the ira <laughs> and secondly i can't find the question now but the, the, yeah so this an english person who was quite angry said what what is it like to be an Irish version of an ISIS battle hymn. <laughs> but I, I think that's a good question to ask. <laughs> Do you know, it's very loaded and whatever, but, and, and I was gonna go, I'm not asking that, but it's like, no, fuck it. How, how, how does it, a British person thinks that you're doing ISIS battle hymns. <laughs> how do you feel about that? I've heard it all before. <laughs> You know those awful, terrible wolf tones? You know them rebel fellas, them wolf tones? I'm going to tell you something. Only for them fellas, only for them fellas there'll be no troubles in the dark. <laughs> I'm going to tell you something about them rebel wolf tone fellas. They started it all. He said they started it all. They forgot about 800 years of history that went on before the Wolf Tones ever started. Ask the English fella about that. Um, what, what I'd like to know too is, like, in, in the early 60s as well, like, Irish traditional music was, was, was doing kind of well. Like, the, the Clancy brothers were fucking flying it over in America, you know? Um, were you gigging with the likes of the Clancy brothers? Uh, what I'd like to know is, is, were you accepted by the Irish traditional scene or were some trad artists scared to be associated with you? No, we were all very, very good friends. And, uh, you know, with, with the Clancy brothers, I loved them. They were very, very beautiful, wonderful people. I met him many times in America. I played with him many times in America. I could not say a bad word about one of those brothers. They were fantastic people. And they were, there was no jealousy. Or there was no, what would you say? No, there wasn't a battle between groups or anything like that. We are all friends. We are all doing the same thing. We are all telling the story of Ireland. We are all promoting Ireland across the world. They were lovely people. And I regret that they're all there today. But my God, they were great people to me and great friends to me. And I could tell you stories about, you know, when I went to America at first. And, uh, you know, I met them over there. They gave me nothing but advice. Mm -hmm. They gave me great advice about America, what to do and what not to do. And, you know, I congratulated the, the path that they broke for other Irish people across America. I couldn't say more about the beautiful and wonderful friendship we had together. 
And I heard a, a, a lovely thing I heard about uh, the Clancy brothers, which I just think is a, it's a lovely story, is so when they started, they, they used to all wear Aran sweaters, you know? Do you know those white woolly jumpers that are made on the Aran Islands? And this was the Clancy brothers' look as such. And they were very popular in, in Greenwich Village. Like, they would have been... Bob Dylan used to support the Clancy Brothers. The Clancy Brothers, when Bob Dylan was about 16, used to teach him songs and stuff like that. Lads from fucking Tip. And, but um, when the Clancy Brothers started to get popular, an American company approached them and said, these fucking jumpers that you're wearing, lads, all the kids are trying to get these Aaron sweaters to wear them to look like ye. How about we make our own Aaron sweaters here in Ireland, we'll put the Clancy Brother name on them, you'll be fucking millionaires. The Clancy Brothers said, why would we do that? Should we put the Aaron Islands out of business? And they didn't, they said no. To preserve the culture of the Aran Islands and the genuine Aran sweater, they turned away millions, which I think that's very admirable. And do you know, it's on brand. <laughs> you know, as a, as a, a, a lot of sound lads. <laughs> um, have you any mad stories about going on the tear in New York? <laughs> oh. oh, well, you know, we, we were very. We were great friends with the police in New York, and... Um... <laughs> Jesus! Sting must have been very young. <laughs> and, you know, um, it's a funny story, really. Uh, back in 19, about 1966, um, we were coming back, um, coming back to Bluebell. I lived in Bluebell in Inchicore there. And we were coming back, and... Um, we were stopped by this car with Yanks in it and all that. And this Yank said, Hey, you guys, you know the way to Valley Fairmouth? And uh, we said, Yeah, 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 we know the way. So we showed them the way. They were across Kylemore Road and all that. So uh, they sent them back anyhow the way. And uh, you guys want a beer? Oh, no, 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 we don't want a beer. No, no, thank you. No. It was about four in the morning. We were going back after a gig. So back to the house and we went to sleep and blah, blah. That August, we went to America and uh, went to New York. And we, we were playing at the city center ballroom in New York, 1966. And uh, they, these, uh, this couple came up and we befriended them. And, uh, and they said, oh, would you like to come up for dinner next Wednesday, wherever it was? Oh, yeah, yeah, homemade dinner was good for us, you know. Very dear to eat out in New York, anyhow. But uh, a free dinner would sound good. But anyhow, they brought us up for dinner up to their mother's house. And uh, we're up there having a beer and a dinner, and I saw corn in the cob for the first time. I couldn't believe it. What's that? <laughs> corn. Oh, no, I never saw it like that. But anyhow, <laughs> but anyhow, we're up there eating dinner, and this guy comes into the room, and this is, this is our son, or the brother of the people we met. I said, this is Mick McCrory, uh, my, my, uh, my brother, yeah, yeah, yeah. And he, he goes, you guys want a beer? I, I, I looked around and I said, were you ever in Ireland? And he said, yeah, yeah, I was in Ireland about two months ago. He said, well, you ever looking for Bally Fairman? <laughs> he said, yeah, I was looking for Bally Fairman. I said, well, we showed you the way. <laughs> <laughs> and what a coincidence it was, out of the millions of people, in New York and the millions of people that we had met over the years, that this was the very person we had showed the way to Ballyferman. And, you know, and we became great friends since then. 
And he was, he was only a rookie uh, in the academy back then. He's now since retired, and uh, retired many, many years. And, uh, you know, he, we became great friends of the New York uh, Police Department, of the Emerald Society, and ever since then, we've had that wonderful, wonderful friendship, which ended up, by the way, uh, with a song called The Streets of New York. And, uh, you know, uh, because of our friendship... Isn't that the biggest selling Irish single of all time? No, The Helicopter. What? The Helicopter. Is that a song as well? <laughs> the Helicopter was about the escape of the three IRA prisoners. Oh, that's the biggest one. Yeah, yeah. The biggest selling record of all time in Ireland. <laughs> Fucking hell. It beat the Beatles. Whoa. You too. <laughs> now was here's the was that I'm not getting, finished. was it getting played <laughs> was that getting played on the radio? Uh, it was it was the only number one in Ireland that was never played in, in the, on radio. Fuck. And you know something? It sold over thirty five thousand records. Over thirty five thousand records in three days. And that was the three days before the escape. And they went on and sold over three million records. We only got paid for three. Oh my God. So you had this massive, massive selling song that wasn't getting radio play and was essentially being passed around by word of mouth. Well, you know, it was the only number one record that, um, that was in the charts uh, that was never played. And the how, song, how did they justify that? Like, how, how? Oh, well, they, they, they never have to, you know, it was just, um, just, and since then, you, you know that the Wolf Tones for 35 years have not been played on RTE. Yeah. Now, uh, the, there is a blacklist there, and I prefer, okay, ban the song and tell us that you're banning the song. But we had a Christmas song out called Remember Me at Christmas. And that was never played. And I think they thought that Santa Claus was in the Provost. <laughs> I swear to God, they never played it. And it was a harmless song. It was a beautiful song about all the wonderful people that you miss and love at Christmas. No, they were all in the Provost. <laughs> but, uh, I think, like, that's one, one of the reasons that I wanted you on in this podcast is because... By RTE ignoring this popular fucking like the Wolf Tones exist, the Wolf Tones are massive. You can't pretend it doesn't exist, and by RTE pretending it doesn't exist, we end up almost like in a, in a fucking Stalinist type of way, losing a record of culture. Do you know what I mean? Like, has there been an RTE Wolf Tones documentary? No, uh, uh, no, there hasn't been, and um, you know. Um, I think there's probably one Jew, because yeah, uh, yeah I, I think the story of the Wolf Tones is very, very unique. Yeah. And uh, it's very, very, it's, it's a wonderful story that's been hidden. And one of the reasons I wrote this book, you can all get it on the internet. What, what's it called there? The, it's the Wolf Tones, the, the, Wolf Tones. Ram, the Ramblings of an Irish Ballad Singer by Brian Warfield. <laughs> a very apt second name. And it, it's... 
uh, it's a very heavy book. It's a very heavy book, a very thick book. But uh, yeah, and if you don't like it, you can put it on the fire and it'll heat the house for two weeks. <laughs> cheaper than coal, cheaper than oil. <laughs> All right. What? <laughs> it's half nine now, right? So I'm going to let you get a pint and have a piss. And we'll come back on in about 15 minutes and have a bit of crack, all right? I had a lovely little moment there. The, uh, the back in the, the music that they're playing, you know, while you were getting pints, it was a, a playlist that I gave them. So I never thought that Blind Boy and one of the Wolf Tones would walk on to Frank Zappa. <laughs> Quite happy with that. Um, so backstage, your, your family came backstage specifically to come up and tell all the stories that you should be telling. Oh, yeah, yeah. Apparently there's they way, way more. Um, so a, a crucial thing that, that you left out while you were telling us about chewing gum was... Um, <laughs> so we all know about the, the, the documentary on Netflix at the moment about the Miami show band, yeah? You've been seeing that, which everyone's talking about it. You were instrumental in making that come together. Yeah, well, uh, about, uh, about two years ago, um, uh, Netflix got on to me and they, said they knew about the Wolf Tones and everything else. And they asked me about uh, the, the scene in Ireland during the Troubles. And I told them the story about uh, the Wolf Tones and, you know, how difficult and how dangerous it was for us to go north and I said in, in fact that there was a, a group uh, that was um, massacred um, it was a show band they weren't a folk group or anything like that but uh, they were massacred on the way back and he got interested in the story and just he, just for the people listening like who killed those people and how did it happen and things like that what, what was your recollection of even hearing about that? Well, there was a gang called the Glenang Gang, and they, they, um, they were in the UDR, and they were also in the R RUC, and uh, there was collusion with uh, the British Secret Service, and they were working together to stop um, Irish groups and Irish bands going north. Uh, they wanted to create a situation where I believe they wanted to blame the IRA uh, on, on the uh, massacre. Mm -hmm. uh, they planted a bomb, uh, they got the uh, band out of the, tr uh, the, the van, which is a Volkswagen van, and they put them on the side of the road, and while they were there, they were planting a bomb underneath the driver's seat uh, of the van, and... Uh, which was set to explode on the way back to Dublin. But what happened was it went off prematurely and uh, the people who were planted the bomb were killed, two of them. And they were known uh, to be part of um, the RUC and they were known to be part of the, uh, the uh, UDR and also part of uh, the um, UFF. Yeah. And they were... Supposedly run by the British. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. The Secret Service, MI5. And remember that uh, man, Nyrek? Yeah. Uh, one of that Secret Service organization. He was in charge. And, and Steve Travers said to me at one stage that um, everything changed. They were quite friendly until this guy came up with a very posh English accent and everything changed. And uh, they were blown out of the side of the road and into a field and only two of them survived and the two that were blown into the field were the two that survived. So I believe that, you know, when we were in that uh, situation in Kilkeel and County Down, when the RUC and the UDR and all those people were getting their act together to uh, capture the wolf tones and probably do the same to the wolf tones on the way down, that uh, our friends, our friends in County Down got some wind of the situation and brought us over the hills mm -hmm. to safety. But uh, only, for, only for them, I believe, the Wolf Tones would not be here today. Mm -hmm. um, and that's nuts when you think of it like, so effectively what you have is MI5 trying to just get, like a show band is just an ent entertainment act. They're just singing songs. And you have the British intelligence trying to frame them to make them look like they were bringing explosives across the border to effectively demonize all entertainment groups. What, what does that say to you about the threat and danger to the system of power that simply music holds? Like, why attack musicians? Why, you know? Well, we, we, we were in danger all the time. We went through many, many periods of danger. Um, when we were up in Belfast and the Ardine, I remember walking through, all the lights were shut out because uh, it was in total darkness. We walked through um, the streets of Ardine, and I remember the little red bricked houses and, the, uh, and everything else, and we bumped into this, uh, this patrol, and the patrol up, up against the wall, they put you up against the wall and left you there for some time. And uh, they interrogated you, whatever, and uh, you know, uh, I, I had a little James Connolly badge on me at the time. Not a great move, if we're being honest. <laughs> But go on. <laughs> and, and uh, which I believe the great hero, and I love him very much. And I had a little badge on, and the guy, the sergeant, whatever, said, what, what have we got here then, mate? And I said, that's my emblem, same as that's your fucking emblem in your hat. I said, that's my emblem here. And he said, oh, we got a right one here then, mate. So they left us standing there for some time, and... Then we eventually went off to our digs, and we were staying with uh, various people around the Ardine. And myself and, uh, and uh, one of the roadies was in this house, 
So we are shown into this bedroom with two beds, a big bed and a little bed, a little kind of child's bed. And the road, he jumped onto the bed. He said, I back this one. So he got, he got the big bed. And I'm in the little bed there. So he looks around, and there's a window beside the bed with about three bullet holes in it. <laughs> and he said he never got to sleep all night. <laughs> I said, well, I had a great sleep. <laughs> so there you are. No, the, you could tell a million stories about, uh, you know, going through the north of Ireland during the Troubles. But were, you get, were you getting protection, Brian? Were you getting protection from, like, the Ra or whoever while you're doing this? Do I get what? Protection from the Ra. Like, someone must have been in... You had to, like, if you're going up singing rebel songs, surely someone is giving you tip-offs, and they're probably the Ra or God, Jerry Adams. No, it was God. <laughs> it was God. No. <laughs> no, look, you know, we, we used to plan, funny enough, when, when we were driving our own cars, which we did for a while... We used to plan to go up in one direction and come back in another route. We never ever took the same route twice. And that's because we always felt under threat. And we never told our wives, we never told our family, we're going up to the north because it would worry them. And I always remember when the, when the um, Miami uh, were massacred, uh, my wife uh, was very worried that it might have been us. Mm -hmm. And it could have been us. And, Probably a lot of people think it should have been us. Mm -hmm. But uh, eventually, like, uh, it was very, very dangerous to go north. I remember loading gear into a, a, a hall in Derry. And uh, it was a Stardust Hall in Derry. And during the, the load-in, we were loading all the equipment and everything else. A gunfire uh, shootout happened between the, the British troops and the, and the IRA who were on top of the on top of the uh, dance hall. And we, we were caught in the middle because the, the troops were down there in the, among the houses. And they were shooting up and the, the IRA was shooting down and we were caught loading gear in there. But uh, we, we just ducked and dived and whatever. And uh, when, the sh when the shooting stopped, we went on with the job. But I mean, that was the north of Ireland back then and it was dangerous. But we are young and we thought we were in, in, uh, invincible. Jesus Christ. Someone threw a bottle at my head once when I was in a gig in Munangar. Um, Brian, you, 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 work, you work for some time in a factory and your job was breaking eggs. Is this, is this correct? I worked at everything when I was in London. You used to do the but why breaking eggs? Like, I mean, uh, so no. you're making chewing gum. I used to pasteurize them. Uh, <laughs> not pasteurize, pasteurize. How are you pasteurizing eggs? You send them to a bloody machine, up and down they go, hot and cold, hot and cold. And all the ladies would be out there breaking eggs, they'd come into me then and I'd pasteurize them. And, and, and then what's, what's at the end of that? Like, like yeah, do they, they go them, back into the shell? They use them for the, 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 the catering business. All oh, right, okay, so they might end up as like dried eggs. <laughs> No, it's liquid, liquid stuff and drums. I, listen, I'd done everything in London while I was waiting to make it as a folk singer. And I'm, I'm, this is true. When we were over there in uh, London, um, I opened a folk club there in Brentwood. And one of the people who was uh, involved in that folk club, a great singer at the time, was Paul Simon. 
Okay. Now, I only knew him as Paul. I didn't know he was Paul Simon or Simon and Gamfolkel, which he became. But, um, and uh, my, I went back to my cousin over there in England and said, uh, do you remember Paul there in uh, Bremwood? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He said, that's Paul Simon of Simon and Gamfolkel. Oh, my God, I never knew that. But uh, he, he was playing with us for uh, uh, many, many times. Another story about uh, Simon and Garfunkel was, uh, does anybody remember the embankment in Tallow? I don't know, you might, you're all too young. But anyhow, it was a famous uh, ballot uh, hall. I mean, we used to... Um, a ballot hall? A ballot pub. Yeah, okay, ball, yeah, yeah, yeah. A ballot pub. And we used to... It was a great after-hours place. We used to meet for after-hours drinks there. and Everybody would come up. Lou Kelly, we'd be all up there. The Clancy's, everybody would be up there. So we'd be up there having drinks and chat and everything else. And uh, one night, and he had a knock comes on the window. Bop, 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 bop. And uh, we all, oh, the cops, you know, it was the cops. Yeah, we all turn out the lights and everyone, the conversation goes down and everything. And uh, they turn out the lights, and uh, Mick McCarthy, who was the owner of uh, the place at the time, goes out to see who's at the, at the window. He goes out, anyhow, he comes back in a while, and the buzz comes back up. Everybody's happy drinking, chatting again. But I asked when Mick came back, I said, who, who was at the window? He says, some fucking Egypt called, with a terrible name, he says. Can't remember his name, but he says, Art Bargunkel. Or something like that. <laughs> and I said, <laughs> and I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. And Liam Clancy was sitting, was sitting beside me. He said, "What did you say, Mick?" He said, "Arbark Bungal, some fellow with a queer name." He said, "I told him to come up here tonight. You're supposed to let him in. He's my guest here tonight." So anyhow, they went out looking for Art Garfunkel, and when they went out there, he got the taxi back, and he was gone. <laughs> For Just fuck's sake. <laughs> Can you tell us a bit about, um, were you knocking around with the Dubliners? Did you know Ronnie Drew, uh, the boys? Did you know them? What were they like? Were they sound? Yeah, um, I was more friendly with uh, Luke Kelly. Yeah. Yeah, um, and Luke Kelly, we used, to, um, we used to drink in the embankment a lot. And Luke Kelly was a, a communist and a member of the Communist Party. And we used to argue about politics, and I used to say, to him, oh, hold on, Luke, it's never going to happen in Ireland. The Irish people had too much government. We don't want communism in this country. And he was a committed communist, and he used to play at, a, at, the, at their affair down in Christchurch. He, was, he used to hold our annual, annual general meeting in a post box down there in a, a post telephone box. <laughs> what? <laughs> There wasn't too many communists in that. I'm just fitting into a fucking <laughs> tiny post box. And, uh, <laughs> Luke Kelly staring in, whispering songs. Anyhow, big fucking hair. <laughs> Anyhow, Luke used to say to me, I don't give a fuck, he says, I'm as red as my hair. <laughs> <laughs> and he was too, and committed. And um, one thing I'd often wonder too, would we ever like uh, tra uh, have files on you from like MI5 or have any, any queer people following you like that? Any British spies? Well, I knew that all our records were in Scotland Yard. That, yeah, there had to have been like. <laughs> I mean, you're singing about the rat. Uh, yeah, no, no. I, 
you'll never know that and you know um, it didn't matter I think the important thing about the Wolf Tones, the important thing that we sang about the events. Remember, we sang about the Guildford Four. We sang about the Birmingham Six. Before anybody, uh, we, when we went to, to get the, the song played on, uh, or get it on the, the Late Late Show, and uh, we were told we don't want any, don't want any songs about terrorists. And that was the kind of m mindset that it was. We don't want those songs about terrorists, but. After the Birmingham Six were exonerated, everybody wanted, they were on the late show, every, every one of them were on there, but when the Wolf Tones were trying to free them and bring justice to the Birmingham Six, we were banned off radio and off television because they didn't understand, they didn't care. We were fighting for the rights of the people. People like, you know, when we sang songs about plastic bullets, you never heard that on radio. You never heard about the awful, awful killings by plastic bullets. You never heard. We sang the songs. We told the story. The Ballad of Joe MacDonald. All those wonderful stories. We told about the, the march of Bert Tunnert uh, when, when the, the Dolores and uh, when the, the, the Price sisters were, you might say, brought into the troubles because of that civil rights march. And they, they were in prison, one of them died in prison because of that awful situation. That, that march was ret, met by people of hate on the Bourne Turret Bridge as they walked from Belfast to Derry. So there's a lot of stories that are untold that are hidden behind the story of Ireland. And we try to bring those to light to make people understand across the world that there was another side. The Irish people were being called terrorists across the world. The Thatcher government at the time was labelling Irish people as terrorists. Well, I thought that was a shame and a terrible shame because we needed, we needed to address that awful slur put upon the Irish people. And people in America wouldn't have understood why they would have took it in. Yeah, yeah, there are uh, terrible bombings. And if you had either guilt association with many people in America mentioned bomb, the only thing that came out was IRA. Guilt association was what they did. You couldn't even mention, under the propaganda rules by the English, you couldn't mention any other organization in Ireland or in Britain other than the IRA to be associated with terrorists. That was the rule and that was the law. Read the book. The book is about uh, IRA, uh, yeah, it's about the propaganda. It's not written, not my book. It's not written by me. It's written by the English people. It's written by the team, uh, by the people of the Times. And they understood, they understood what was happening with British propaganda. So the idea was to demonize the Irish and then you could do what you like with them. And that was always the way. As a form but of dehumanization. We were, there, we were there to fight against that propaganda. Um, <clears throat> one thing I'm noticing too, just from hearing you speak, you're almost documenting and recording history with the songs. You're documenting them and putting them out there. And that's... That's a real Irish tradition. That goes as far back as the bards of nearly Breton times 
that it was the responsibility of the artist in Irish society to reflect what's actually happening. That was the artist's responsibility. Do you view what you were doing within that tradition, within a long Irish tradition? Absolutely, and you, you said it very well. The Irish uh, ballad, the Irish story, is a reflection of what's happening in Ireland. It's not leading the way. It was reflecting what is happening day by day by day. And not alone do we, you know, I've written, song, I've written 120 songs at this stage about every aspect of Ireland, you know, including the banking situation. And uh, yeah, I know you love the bankers here. But I mean, every, every story, including our great sport heroes and everything else. And I think that's Irish life. I think that's the duty of the Irish ballad singer, is to reflect Irish life, to tell the story of Irish life. And it's been said by many people that a true reflection of history is in the Irish song rather than the Irish historian. An Irish historian writes for other historians. Academics write for other academics. To be commended by, oh, you've done it, oh, that's great. Yeah, revisionist. You know, I remember Ruth Dudley Edward came up to me uh, we were playing in uh, the National Concert Hall, uh, the National in London, and uh, there was almost 3,000 people there, and uh, all young people, and it was back in the uh, 79, and uh, they were all dancing around. I'd just written a song called Podrick Pierce for the 100th anniversary of his birth. I was very proud of that song. I was very proud of Podrick Pierce and his memory. So out we go, and the song was in the charts. It was number four or number five, I can't remember. But... We sang this song, and out there, the wonderful, wonderful people were all dancing around and clapping around to the song, telling the story of our great hero, Podrick Pierce. Well, the owner of the National came up to me, knock, knock, knock. I was in the dressing room. He said, there's some old one down there with three names wants to see you. <laughs> oh, that's a bad sign. <laughs> I said, who is it? She said, Ruth Dudley Edwards. I said, holy fuck, who's she? <laughs> Well, anyhow, she, she comes up, I bring her up to the green room, we have a, I buy her a drink and blah, blah. I'm ashamed of you, she said. I'm ashamed of you having all them people dance around to Podrick Pierce and they're all ready to take guns and go up the north and shoot everybody. I said, no, they're not. They're celebrating a great hero of Ireland. So we went through a great conversation. She had hers and she is a revisionist. I said... She wrote a book of Podrick Pierce, and I said, I had read it. I said, if Podrick Pierce is in his grave today, he turned around, and I hope he comes back and haunts you, because you made a terrible, terrible job on the story of Podrick Pierce. She brought out every negative piece of Podrick Pierce's life to downgrade him and to make a fool of him. But, he, you know, the Irish people know better than that. What I love there, and I do find it quite wholesome that you threaten somebody with a haunting. Because <laughs> um, that's a good way to threaten someone. It's not, there's no physicality to it. It might not manifest. You just go, I hope a ghost come back, comes back and bothers your life. It's a fine and thing to will. say to someone. Fine thing to say to someone. Um, unless it's like the ghost of a spider. 
fuck that. I could deal with a human ghost, you know, <laughs> rattling chains, but a fucking spider's ghost, not a chance. Are you from Limerick? Are you from I, I, Limerick? Of course I'm from Limerick, yeah. Oh, the terrible people in Limerick. Oh, the terrible, terrible, terrible people in Limerick. Terrible nice people they are in Limerick. Uh, <laughs> they're terrible. Oh, they're terrible nice. Terrible nice. We were down in Limerick recently, and you know, we couldn't get out of the pub. I swear to God, they're feeding us drink. Whiskey. Whiskey and all that stuff. They were throwing on us right, left and center. Have another. Have another. Have another. Have another. We couldn't get out of the place, I swear to God. I wouldn't mind. I wouldn't mind, I wouldn't mind, but my grandmother used to say that whiskey makes you sick when you're well, and well when you're sick. <laughs> when we were babies, when we were babies, when we were babies, and we got the colic in our bellies, we got the colic in our bellies, they used to give us whiskey in our bottles. We used to get whiskey in our bottles, we used to have to drink it down, and the colic all went away. Then, if you had a toothache, or a gum bile, or anything else like that, what did you get? <laughs> Whiskey. On a piece of cotton wool, put against the toothache, the gum bile, and everything else like that. What happened? It all went away! If you had a cold, or a flu, or a sore throat, or anything like that, what did you get? Whiskey. And all mixed with hot water, with lemon, with honey, a little aspirin troll on top. Blunk! Drink that down, it's good for you! We used to drink it down, and the colds and the flus all went away! No wonder we're all bloody alcoholics! And then when we wanted it, when you were 13 or 14, the big parties at home, they were all back from England and all that. Oh, can I have some of that whiskey stuff you give me, Mammy? No, you can't have it. You're too young. <laughs> whiskey makes you sick when you're well, and well when you're sick. I love it's true, no, it's true, no, no. How did we move so quickly onto threatening people with hauntings and banishing colic from fucking Vicar Street? Um... And the subject of Limerick, the, the wolf tones are massive in Limerick, right? I, and th this is, I, 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 have an, I have an opinion now about the wolf tones music, which you may strongly disagree with, but it's something that I hold dear. So I, I know about the wolf tones because when I was growing up, what you listened to, right, what lads listened to was either rap music, like Tupac or something like that. You'd listen to Tupac, Bob Marley, and the wolf tones. Those were the three things... But I find, in the way that, with the Wolf Tones tunes, it's essentially t reflecting what's happening, telling the stories that aren't being told in the media, and fighting a power system that exists. The same thing is present in rap music. The, while I was listening to Kamauchi Black and Tans when I was a kid, I was also listening to a group called NWA from Los Angeles, and their song was Fuck the Police. But what, fuck the police and come out your black and hands, it's the same thing. It's, they were reflecting, they weren't saying fuck the police as in we don't agree with law. It was in, at the height of huge police brutality against the black community. So in the way that you're talking about plastic bullets, 
rap music was doing that. They're saying the police on our streets are murdering us because we're black. It's been ignored in the media, so we're fucking singing about it. And the FBI investigated them. And I see, I think that's why in Limerick, you had young lads listening to the wolf tones and listening to rap music. And for these two things that are wildly miles apart to perfectly exist beside each other and for that to be okay. Do you agree or disagree with that? Is well, uh, yeah, I, I could, you know, the, the history and the story of Ireland and that we have told, it's about oppression. And yeah. the oppression in Ireland, you know, has no difference to the oppression of any community across the world. We tell of the Irish situation. I always felt that, you know, support the people of Ireland and when Ireland gets its rights, then I can focus on other people because I started off life supporting, you know, civil rights and yeah. other movements. And I moved on to Ireland because I felt that the injustice was also in Ireland. Now, I've, I always felt since then you can't fight everybody's corner. And if you tell your own story and the story of your own people truthfully and honestly, well, then it can reflect across the world. Yeah. Because people will understand that story and put it into their situations. Yeah. So that was the Wolf Tones. We told the story. I've written 120 songs about every aspect of Ireland, about all the injustice. And, you know, it has resonated to outer communities of this world. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I'm glad that we, you know, that we have made that difference. Uh, across the world that, you know, it's unbelievable that, you know, w w when I think back to it, uh, you know, when we first sang the song, uh, The Ballad of Joe MacDonald, and uh, we sang it, first of all, in... And who, in, who was Joe, who was he? I wrote the song, Joe MacDonald. And, and who was Joe MacDonald? Uh, Joe, Joe MacDonald was a fifth-year man who died on the hunger strike back in 1981. Mm -hmm. He was a young man from Belfast, and he went on that hunger strike for the rights to be treated as a political prisoner, the right to wear his own clothes as a, a normal uh, prisoner and not as a convict, and the right to, be, to mix with other people in the same situation. Mm -hmm. Well, those, those rights were denied to them by the Thatcher government at the time, and two hunger strikes ensued. And the first one was brought to an end on the Christmas of 1980. And uh, they were conned into the fact that they thought they were granted uh, the rights that they looked for. The second one started in 1981, of which Joe MacDonald was the fifth one, young man to die. He died uh, because for his friends. For, remember, you've got to remember, all these young men were in their 20s. They were all in their 20s. They had a beautiful life to live ahead of them. They gave and sacrificed their lives for the for, for their friends, for the people they loved, for the country they loved, for the town, for the home, for the rights to live in dignity in their own place. And they gave their lives one by one from Bobby Sands right through. Those tenure men gave their lives. On the fifth, uh, the, the death of the fifth year man who was listening to the radio. Uh, on that morning in my bed, and, and I heard the story of the fifth young man dying, Joe MacDonald, I decided 
I'd have to do something to bring it to a, a stop. Stop this awful carnage. I wrote a song, The Ballad of Joe MacDonald. And the important part of that song, I think, is you dare to call me a terrorist as you look down your gun when I think of all those deeds that you have done. You had plundered many nations, divided many lands. You had terrorized our people. You ruled with an iron hand and you brought this reign of terror to my land. And that was the truth of it. These young men in Belfast, we wouldn't understand the situation. We were very comfortable here. And we wouldn't have understood, but I understood it by visiting and going up there and hearing the remarks of the people and everything else like that. I understood it. And this hit my heart and I had to do something about it. When we sang that song in many places and this uh, guy came up to me in Canada and he said, hey man, he was from the Caribbean. Irish guys don't do that, do they? Yeah. Uh, hey, man, he says, you got to tell that song to the world. He said, this is the best song I've ever heard in my life. And, you know, it resonated throughout the world, standing ovations in every country. I think the world understands the injustice that was dished out to the Irish people. You've seen the collusion and everything else that happened. A lot has been hidden, but while the wolf turns around, we will tell the story. Someone has asked, uh, has Brian ever considered writing a song for the Eurovision? <laughs> Come out, you black and tans! <laughs> That's a no, I'm guessing. <laughs> Um, who, were, who were your musical influences in terms of rebel music? Like, or was that even a thing? Were, like, were you listening to records of rebel music or was it simply what you were hearing in the pub or in your, your granny's house? Like, did, did rebel music records exist in, in the 50s? Well, the protest song, as we know it across the world, has always been there. It's not a new thing. Uh, the, uh, the protest song is in the black community mm -hmm. in America. The protest song is in South Africa. The protest song is in many of the colonial uh, peoples of the world. And, you know, we were voted, when they voted for the na a nation once again as the best song of the millennium. Yeah. <laughs> We need to talk about that as well. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> that was nuts. Yeah, well... <laughs> what well, was that in 2002? Was it, was it no, BBC it was, or...? It was the song of the millennium. In other words, they asked the people of the world to vote for what they thought was the most significant song of the last thousand years. <laughs> and what happened? That was for the year 2000. Well... It happened to be the Wolf Tones. <laughs> and, it, and what was the song? And it happened to be A Nation Once Again by the Wolf Tones. And Nation Once Again, as you well know, was written by Thomas Davis. And he, he died in 1847. Uh, 
September 15, oh my God, he was a great inspiration to the people of Ireland. And uh, he had uh, been part of the nation a newspaper that inspired the Irish people to bring confidence to the Irish people as a nation once again. He wrote that song in 1843 for uh, O'Connell's uh, repeal of the movement, uh, repeal of the Union year, which was 1843. And uh, he wrote that song to support O'Connell. Um, a wonderful song, a great song, and it, with great meaning. And it, it has meaning to this very, very, very day. And I always remember one time we were, just to tell you a story about RTE. <laughs> well, we, we were putting in a program for, I think it was up for the match or one of those programs. And we put in a program, one of the songs was A Nation Once Again. We put A Nation Once Again, all right. So we put in A Nation Once Again as one of the songs. I think Cork were in the final or something, and uh, Thomas Davis was from, um, was from uh, Mallow in Cork. So we put that song as a kind of a Cork connection. And uh, oh, the producer came up, no, 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 no. You can't sing that song. No, 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 you can't sing that song. We said, no, no, why not? He said... Uh, we can't, it's to, not the time, not the, you know, not the place, no, no. He said, well, uh, what's his name? Sh uh, Frank Patterson sang it there last week and in one of the shows, blah, blah. Oh, that's different, he says. When the wolf tones sing it, they mean it. <laughs> <laughs> and that's an absolute fact. <laughs> and we did mean it. <laughs> um. Before I open up questions to the audience, um, a lot of people were just asking, what do you think about Brexit at the moment and the north of the country and the border and all this business? What's your opinion on that? I think we should, uh, the people up there should exit Brexit. <laughs> you know, it's, uh, they voted against it and uh, they're entitled uh, to break away as, as the people of Scotland are and yeah. the people of Wales are. So, you know, they talk about democracy. If it's a democracy, it, it, it applies to everybody, not just to England. Yeah. Sure, the poor old fucking Scots. <laughs> Lads, the Scots. The Scots were given the chance of an independence referendum, and, and one of the reasons they didn't... A strong reason they didn't leave the Union is because... England basically said to them, well, if you leave Britain, like, it's going to, you'd be out of the EU. It's going to take a while, lads, to get back into the EU. <laughs> so the Scots said, all right, fair enough, England, we'll stick around. And then England a year later go, fuck that. <laughs> Poor bastards. Yeah. Um, it's a mess. It's a mess. It's an absolute yeah, mess. A mess, and, a mess. And it's changing every day. Yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm looking at the news by the hour and I still don't know what's happening. It's insanity. Quite an abrupt ending there. I do apologise. Um, the recording stopped at that point but literally we'd gone into audience questions literally after that and I don't know what happened but whenever we went into audience questions passed the mic around the audience and it didn't pick up or something so but that was the that was the interview with Brian Warfield from the Wolf Tones didn't get the audience questions in unfortunately I hope you enjoyed that Um. Like I said, you don't have to agree with the fucking, with the wolf tones, whatever opinion you want, but I just feel it's important to document 
culturally important, a culturally important Irish group, no matter what you think of them, um, because no one else seems to be doing it. And 55 years is a long time to be doing what they're doing. All right, I'll talk to you next week. Yart. <laughs>